Welcome to the Legendary Upside Podcast. My name is Pat Corain. You can find all of my written content at legendaryupside.com. And this episode is going to be a narration of some of that written content. Every week I write an article called The Walkthrough. It is an extensive game-by-game preview of the upcoming NFL week. And I record that article in full for subscribers. This is going to be a free preview of that recording. So the first four games this week, last week I did three, but I kind of like the, the fourth game. So I added one more in here uh, as part of the free preview. And uh, you can go ahead and listen to that. If you want to listen to the entire article or read the entire article, uh, go to legendaryupside.com and sign up for a yearly subscription, which costs $99, but you can get a $50 underdog credit uh, by going to legendaryupside.com slash leg up dash perks, or you can sign up for a monthly subscription. It's only 10 bucks a month. It's a pretty awesome deal. So go ahead and do that if you want to hear the rest, but let's go ahead and get to the free preview. The title is Week 3 Walkthrough, Jordan Addison Goes Deep. Welcome to the Week 3 Walkthrough. In this article, I'll outline critical fantasy football context for this third glorious week of football. The first section is called Win Rates in the Trenches. This week I've added ESPN's pass block, run block, pass rush, and run stop win rates to my matchup charts. These metrics are based on the NFL next-gen player tracking data. In a sense, they are the trenches version of NFL next-gen's rush yards over expected slash success rate metrics or ESPN's open score slash receiver ratings. Given that I'm a big fan of both groups of metrics, I'm excited to be able to have another player tracking metric to add to the arsenal. On the pass blocking slash pass rushing side, ESPN's metrics will serve to reinforce quick pressures per dropback in my analysis. Per ESPN, quote, our pass rush win rate metric tells us how often a pass rusher is able to beat his block within 2.5 seconds. Likewise, our pass block win rate metric conveys the rate linemen can sustain their blocks for 2.5 seconds or longer, end quote. On the run blocking side, the metric may prove even more valuable to this article, given that I didn't really have a rough equivalent already in place. Per ESPN, Quote, in run-stop win rate, a defender can earn a win by doing any of the following. Beating his blocker, so he's in better position to stop the runner. Disrupting the pocket or running lane by pushing his blocker backward. Containing the runner such that he must adjust his running lane. Or recording a tackle within three yards of the line of scrimmage. If a defender earns a run-stop win, his blocker earns a loss and vice versa. End quote. I will be using the team-level version of the metrics, but you can dive into player-specific metrics here, and then I provide a link, and I may touch on those as needed in future weeks. Let's get to it. The first game is the Chargers at Vikings. Chargers implied team total, 26.5. The Chargers dropped to 0-2 against the Titans, but at least their passing game showed some life. After a slight tilt to the run in Week 1, the Chargers shifted to the pass against the pass-funnel Titans defense, operating with a 5% pass rate of expected and an 8% pass rate of expected on first down. Through two weeks, they now look perfectly balanced. Then I have a chart here showing the Chargers. They're actually covered up by the Raiders and Saints in the chart. They're right in the middle of the chart, but got a little arrow pointing to them uh, underneath those teams. But like the Dolphins, the Vikings will probably invite the Chargers 
to run the ball. After operating with an 8% pass rate of expected in Week 1, the Eagles shifted heavily to the run against Minnesota, posting a minus 12% pass rate of expected. This seemed to be a choice by the Vikings as a means of keeping a cap on the Eagles' explosive passing game. As we saw in Week 1, the Chargers are open to running the ball if the opportunity arises, and even if the Vikings don't prioritize stopping the pass over the run, the Vikings can be run on. Then I've got the matchup chart here. The Vikings really jump out as being bad in run defense. They're 26th in the EPL out per rush, 29th in rushing success rate, 31st in run grade. Uh, they also don't have a great pass rush is the other thing here that, that jumps out. With Austin Eckler still dealing with an ankle injury, it looks like another week of Joshua Kelly leading the way. Kelly handled the load for the Chargers in Week 2, posting a 78% snap share and a 62% share of team attempts. Elijah Dotson, who I'd definitely heard of before the game, mixed in for four carries, with Isaiah Spiller seeing just one attempt. Then I have a chart here, and this is from the Game Log tool from Fantasy Life, uh, highlighting his Week 2 Game Log, Joshua Kelly that is, with 78% snap share, 66% share of routes as well. It was a brutal week for Kelly, who managed just 3.9 PPR points. But the biggest issue is that the Chargers clearly do not view him as a passing game weapon. With Eckler out of the lineup, Kelly saw high-end route participation, 66%, but was targeted just once. He has just a 3% target share this season. Then I've got a chart on Kelly's efficiency and usage. And yeah, his receiving stuff is horrendous. He has a 0.0 yards per route run, 4% targets per route run. His rushing efficiency is not bad. He has a 45% success rate. He's been over-expected in uh, rush yards over-expected. So decent rusher, but he is not Eckler. Kelly's fantasy value is driven almost entirely by rushing production. But fortunately, he looks like a competent rusher. He ranks running back 17 in rush yards over-expected per game and RB16 in success rate. This is the type of matchup where he's worth going back to as an RB2, assuming Eckler is out. But even with the potential for a run-first game plan, Justin Herbert should be an efficient producer. Herbert ranks quarterback 11 in EPA per game and quarterback 5 in success rate. Then I've got the EPA per game chart here. Herbert is not in the top uh, four. There's sort of a cluster of four quarterbacks, Tua, Josh Allen, Geno Smith, and Lamar Jackson in success rate this year. But Herbert kind of leads the next pack in success rate. And he's right there with most of those other uh, high success rate quarterbacks in EPA per game. And the Chargers passing game remains highly concentrated. Quinton Johnston debuted with 38% route participation and then dropped to 20% in week two. The passing offense continues to flow through Keenan Allen and Mike Williams, who are combining for a 52% target share. Then I've got a chart here showing the Chargers uh, wide receivers. Keenan Allen with a 28% target share, Mike Williams with 24%, and then Joshua Palmer is third, but he is at 8% target share. Both Allen and Williams look like great plays this week. Williams missed some routes in week one after taking a hit, but he was back to 89% route participation in week two. After seeing strong per-route target volume against the Titans, he looks like just as solid of a play as Allen. Then I've got a chart here comparing Keenan Allen and Mike Williams. Uh, when you look at the first read targets per route, they're identical at 19%. And then when you look at expected yards per route run, 
uh, which really just uses a dot and targets per route run to determine like what if you had a normal yards per target your yards per route run would be mike williams actually has the higher of the two marks he's at 2.20 and keenan allen is at 2.03 so they're both very good marks they're both elite marks uh, but uh, even though keenan allen has been the more efficient of the two so far this season the underlying volume if anything kind of leans williams way but my point here is that they're very similar the chargers commitment to the pass is a minor concern this week but there should be plenty of points in this game, given it has the highest total of the week. And when Herbert drops back, we know where the targets will be going. Vikings implied team total, 27.5. The 0-2 Vikings need a get-right spot, and they've already played Tampa Bay. But the Chargers defense profiles as a near-perfect matchup for the Vikings. Then I've got the matchup chart here. The Chargers are 32nd in EPA allowed per dropback. They are 30th in coverage grade. They have a decent pass rush, but they look very vulnerable uh, on the back end. The Chargers are decent at stopping the run, but the Vikings can't run the ball on anyone, so who cares? More importantly, the Chargers have been terrible at stopping the pass, allowing Tyreek Hill to go nuclear in week one and letting Ryan Tannehill lead the NFL in completion percentage over expected against them in week two. The Chargers are decent at getting pressure, but the Vikings have held up well in pass protection this year, ranking fifth in pass block win rate. With the highest total of the week, Vegas is expecting this game to be a shootout. If it plays out that way, we can count on the Vikings to lean into the script. That's how they played it in 2022, and that's how they're playing it this year. Then I have a chart here. This is a chart I'll reference a bunch in this uh, article. It has four quadrants, one uh, in the top left is refusing to pass that's teams like the cardinals the titans the lions basically the falcons these are teams that are in uh, scripts that call for passing but they're still running the ball heavily then in the bottom left are teams who are dictating the run the cowboys and the 49ers are kind of the key teams this year that are uh, in run heavy scripts and then pounding the rock in those scripts then if we move over to the bottom right these are teams that are also in run-heavy game scripts, but they are not running. They are passing at a very high rate. The Chiefs, kind of year in, year out, are the prototypical team uh, for this part of the chart. They're a very good team, but they dictate passing scripts to their opponents. They win through the passing game. Then in the top right, we get to the Vikings. The Vikings last year and this year have been kind of the prototype of this type of team. They are in pass-heavy game scripts a lot. Uh, but they are not afraid of that environment. They're happy to kind of play into those shootout scripts, uh, which I think is pretty relevant for this game. If the Vikings can protect Cousins, they should have a lot of success attacking downfield. In a league obsessed with preventing explosive gains, the Chargers aren't getting the job done. They've allowed 15-plus yard passes on 26% of dropbacks, the highest rate in the NFL. Much of that was driven by Miami's 17 explosive passes in week one. But this is not the defense you'd pick to shut down Justin Jefferson. Then I've got Justin Jefferson's chart here, and it's outrageously good. 100% route participation, 29% uh, target share, 42% air yard share. He's got 27% first read target rate, which is elite. His expected yards per route run of 2.43 is elite and then he has an ultra elite 3.32 yards per route run so he, he has awesome volume and he's been very efficient on that volume unsurprisingly jefferson looks like an absolute superstar this season 
He hasn't missed a single route and is the engine of the passing attack with a 27% first read target rate. Even while dealing with a high rate of double coverage, he's delivering an ultra-elite 3.32 yards per route run. He has a massive ceiling this week. Then I've got a chart here that I'll use a couple times. Uh, this is showing Whopper on the y-axis, which is you know the combined uh, metric for target share and air yard share. Uh, so basically, how big of a share of the offense do you have? And then on the y or on the x-axis uh, is yards per route run. And so Jefferson is where you want to be in the top right. He's got an awesome yards per route run. And he's also seeing a huge share of the Vikings offense. And you can see on this chart a pretty big distinction between Jefferson, Jordan Addison, and TJ Hawkinson. Those guys are kind of much more in the, the mix with, with a lot of other guys. Jordan Addison's profile is far less exciting than Jefferson's, but he looks like a great fit for this matchup. The Vikings should be taking shots downfield against the Chargers, and Addison has been their go-to guy on deep shots. With defensive attention flooding to Jefferson, defenses can't fully account for Addison, who has seen double coverage on just 15% of his routes compared to 26% for Jefferson. And the Vikings are taking advantage of Addison's ability in one-on-one -on -one matchups downfield. With a 16.5 ADOT, a 26% air yard share, and 1.99 yards per route run, Addison is operating as a high-level deep threat. Then I've got his chart here. Compared to Jefferson's, it's much weaker, but he is seeing a lot of looks downfield. His area share of 26% is strong. And again, that 16.5 ADOT is very deep. He's a true deep threat in this offense. And I think it makes a lot of sense given Addison's speed and how dominant Justin Jefferson is in the intermediate area. In route participation, Addison at 72% remains behind KJ Osborne at 95%. But Osborne's low-end 0.74 yards per route run would make him vulnerable to losing playing time under normal circumstances. It doesn't help he has an explosive rookie on his heels. Addison is a boom-bust option this week, but he's the type of guy I'd be breaking ties toward in the flex. Addison is also a very interesting DFS play in an ideal game environment, and a matchup that perfectly fits what the talented rookie is bringing to the Vikings offense. TJ Hawkinson is more volume-dependent. He has an elite 21% first read target rate, but his role in the offense has him soaking up a lot of underneath coverage, and when he is targeted, it tends to be very shallowly. Hawkinson's role in the Vikings offense isn't dissimilar to Evan Ingram's with the Jaguars, with the important distinction that Hawkinson is a much bigger part of his offense. Then I have a chart here comparing Hawkinson and Evan Ingram. You see that uh, the average depth of target really the thing I think that makes them similar. They're both kind of yards after catch producers on shallow targets. Hawkinson at 4.8, Evan Ingram at 4.1. These are both very shallow average depth of targets for a tight end. Uh, but Hawkinson drawing a lot more coverage than Ingram. Defense is showing him more respect. He's got a 30% double coverage rate to Evan Ingram's 21%. And then Hawkinson is at 21% first read target rate to Evan Ingram's 11%. So Hawkinson definitely better than Ingram. I think everyone agrees there, but the role is, is still somewhat similar. Even though Hawkinson looks like a volume-driven play, he is earning targets at an impressive rate. In a game with a 54-point total and a game plan that should revolve around the pass, target volume shouldn't be a problem. Volume was the stated reason for Alexander Madison's ridiculously inflated late summer ADP, 
and Madison's rushing volume has been as promised so far. He has an elite 79% share of team attempts. And then I've got a chart here from Fantasy Life showing that Alexander Madison is RB4 in uh, share of team attempts. Only Zach Moss at 86%, Brian Robinson at 79%, Joe Mixon at 79% uh, are higher than Alexander Madison, who is also at 79% in terms of the share of team carries that he's gotten so far. The problem is that Madison is not a starting caliber NFL running back. His four-year track record in the league made that blatantly obvious entering the season, but the Vikings and a slew of fantasy managers powered ahead anyway. The results have been even worse than I anticipated. Then I have Alexander Madison's chart here. He is at minus 11 rush yards over expected per game. Uh, He is RB40 in rush yards over expected per attempt. He is RB40 in success rate. Uh, He does not have any breakaway yards yet. Uh, He is RB44 in elusive rating. He is RB35 with a 0.4 yards per route run. The Vikings have now added Cam Akers to the mix, but Akers has been even less efficient than Madison and didn't earn a single target in week one. Then I've got Akers efficiency here. Yeah, he's RB48 in rush yards over expected per game. He has produced negative 41. That's 41 per game. Well, I guess he was only in one game at week one, but still, in a single game, he produced 41 fewer yards than expected. Uh, He had a 14% success rate. Uh, If you doubled his success rate, it would still be very bad. Uh, So Akers, yeah, it was a rough showing in week one. Akers doesn't look like a threat exactly, but he does create some uncertainty for Madison's workload. Madison's receiving volume looks safe, but it wouldn't be shocking to see Akers used at the goal line. Madison has handled 100% of the Vikings' attempts inside the five. Given his efficiency, if he cedes any of the work to Akers, it will really hurt. Madison profiles as a touchdown or bust RB2. This is the right game environment for a touchdown-dependent bet, but Madison's floor is definitely a concern. The next game is Broncos at Dolphins. Broncos implied team total, 20.75. Maybe the issue really was Nathaniel Hackett. A season ago, Russell Wilson produced negative EPA and finished quarterback 31 in success rate. And that's when he wasn't filming chilling commercials for Subway. Then I have his EPA per game chart here from 2022. And Russell Wilson was in a pack of quarterbacks that you do not want to be a part of from last year with Mac Jones, Carson Wentz, Deshaun Watson. Uh, just ahead of the Zach Wilson, Davis Mills, and Baker Mayfield crew, but he was one of the worst quarterbacks in the league last year. But in two games under Sean Payton, Wilson has been much better. Sure, he hasn't been perfect, but the Broncos can produce a functional offense with Wilson playing like this. Then I have his chart here, and right now he's right next to Matthew Stafford. Uh, He's just below Dak Prescott in EPA per game, but he has a similar success rate. Uh, He's playing very well. Encouragingly, Peyton seems to like what he's seeing. The Broncos have a minus 1% pass rate of expected and a minus 5% pass rate over expected on first down. So they're signaling a somewhat conservative approach, but their game scripts have not been conservative so far. Their expected 67% pass rate is the 10th highest in the league. So their balanced overall approach is leading to plentiful dropbacks. 
Then I've got the expected pass rate chart here, specifically from week two. And the Broncos uh, were, were passing a lot in a passing game script last week. The Broncos' willingness to lean into pass-heavy game scripts is especially important as 6.5-point road underdogs in Miami. If Peyton got to pick the style of this game, he'd likely pick something fairly conservative. But he appears willing to play to win, which could mean a lot of passing if the Dolphins play up to their potential. And the Broncos are nearing full strength in the passing game. Jerry Judy returned in Week 2 to post 86% route participation. His 19% target share was a bit lacking, but he should see more targets in his second week back in action. Judy looks like a better way to play this passing game than Cortland Sutton, who has a similar target profile but doesn't have the excuse of returning from a hamstring injury. Then I've got a chart comparing Sutton and Judy. Route participation only slightly favors Sutton. Sutton been healthy for the two games at 89% route participation. Judy coming back in week two was already at 86%. Uh, so not a big lead there for Sutton at all. And then in first read targets per route, Sutton is at 13%, which is pretty weak. Judy is at 11%, which is very weak. But again, Judy was coming back from injury. So uh, his profile, I think we have more reason for optimism there. But this offense won't be at its best until Marvin Mims has a full-time role. Mims is being kept off the field by Brandon Johnson and Lil Jordan Humphrey, but it's only a matter of time until the rookie earns more playing time. Then I've got a chart comparing these three wide receivers. Brandon Johnson is at 58% route participation, Humphrey is at 44%, and Mims is all the way down at 20%. But when you look at the actual uh, numbers when they're out on the field, in targets per route, Mims is at 25%. Compared to 13% for Johnson, 11% for Humphrey. Uh, he has an expected yards per route run of 3.13 compared to 1.34 for Johnson and 0.99 for Humphrey. Uh, and Mims is drawing a ton of double coverage as well. At 44%, he's in the 100th percentile among wide receivers. So the defense has been paying attention to Mims, but he's still drawing a ton of volume. The Broncos are absolutely feeding Mims when he's on the field. He has an elite 25% first read target rate which is especially impressive for a deep threat. With a 23.8 ADOT, Mims has an expected 3.13 yards per route run. So yes, he's going to regress from his absurd 7.63 yards per route run, but he still has elite per route opportunity backing that up. Now we just need more routes. In this type of situation, I would not expect Mims to suddenly be in a full-time role. But at the same time, I would be shocked if Mims stayed in this type of rotational role all season. This is often the story with rookies. It doesn't always happen right away. But when a high draft pick delivers on big opportunities, we can expect big things down the line. For now, I'd keep Mims on the bench. But he's a priority stash, even in shallow bench formats. In the backfield, things remain split. In fact, after leading the backfield with a 48% snap share against the Raiders, Javante Williams, 46%, played slightly behind Samaje Pirine, who had 51% of snaps against the Commanders. Pirine appears to have a meaningful route participation edge and projects to be the snap leader again this week. Then I've got uh, a chart showing the route participation. Pirine was at 53% through the first two weeks. Uh, Javante Williams down at 29%. So pretty big edge there. If this game gets kind of nutty, 
then Pirine would be the leader most likely. Frustratingly, Williams only has 25% of short down and distance snaps, making him a dreaded trap back. Hopefully, as Williams returns to full health, he'll capture more of Denver's high-value touches. And that isn't just blind hope. Williams ranks RB2 in targets per route run. His route participation is frustratingly low, but his target rate indicates that the Broncos view him as a receiving game contributor. More snaps should mean more routes, eventually. Then I've got Javante Williams' profile here. And yeah, his 14% target share is actually really nice. 35% targets per route run is awesome, uh, but he's not getting a ton of routes. That 29% route participation really hurts. Uh, So just kind of a slow burn here with Williams until he gets back to full health. This week, Williams looks like a very risky but viable play. And with the potential for this game to shoot out, Pirine looks mildly interesting as a starter on zero running back teams. Moving to the Dolphins, who have an implied team total of 27.25. The Broncos' defense has faced the Raiders and the Commanders this year. Yet they still rank 29th in EPA allowed per dropback. In other words, the Broncos look like a bad pass defense but they might be a really bad pass defense. And they are now facing the top-ranked passing offense in the NFL. Then I've got the matchup chart here. The Dolphins are first in EPA per dropback, first in dropback success rate, first in passing grade. They have been awesome. The Dolphins' biggest weakness as a passing offense is that they don't have a great offensive line. They've held up pretty well so far, but rank only 19th in pass block win rate but they are likely to get Teron Armstead back this week. And either way, the Broncos are not well suited to take advantage of poor offensive line play. They rate well in PFF's pass rush grades, but aren't winning quickly. They rank 27th in pass rush win rate and 30th in quick pressures per dropback. An inability to generate quick pressure is an especially big issue when facing the Dolphins because Tua Tagovailoa has the quickest time to throw in the NFL. And unlike many other quick passers, Tua is still attacking downfield on quick throws. On throws under 2.5 seconds, Tua has a 7.6 ADOT, the second deepest in the NFL. Other quarterbacks like Sam Howell, who has a 1.1 ADOT on those throws, Desmond Ritter, 2.6 ADOT, and Justin Fields, 3.3 ADOT, are doing very little damage on quick throws but Tonga is able to pick apart defenses that can't get to him quickly. To make matters worse, Denver is actually pretty decent at stopping the run, ranking fourth in rushing success rate. That strength could ultimately be a weakness if it causes teams to attack their pass defense even more aggressively, and the Broncos are already flashing signs of being a pass funnel. This is all terrific news for the Dolphins' passing game, which is already operating at an extremely high level. Tua currently ranks quarterback one in EPA per game and quarterback three in success rate. Then I've got the EPA per game chart here and Tua at the very top right, uh, Josh Allen, Geno Smith ahead in success rate, but he leads in EPA per game. This week's matchup offers the potential for efficiency and volume. It's hard to believe that Mike McDaniel hasn't noticed how juicy this passing matchup is. And even if the Broncos' offense doesn't push back, the Dolphins have shown a willingness to pass from ahead. Then I've got the chart here uh, showing expected pass rate and pass rate, 
and the Dolphins are one of the teams that are dictating the pass to their opponents, not in a Chiefs-style way, but they are passing even when they're in scripts where you could justify running the ball heavily. Even without Jalen Waddle, who has yet to practice this week, this offense should be more than capable of putting up points. Tyreek Hill is just that dominant. With a 0.82 whopper, Hill is accounting for an enormous share of the Dolphins' offense, and he is doing it with an NFL-leading 3.86 yards per route run. Then I've got the whopper and yards per route run chart here. Tyreek Hill is at the very uh, right part of this chart, indicating he's the highest yards per route run in the league, and he's really close to the top in terms of whopper. He is what an elite wide receiver looks like. Hill profiles as the highest upside skill player of the week. If Waddle is unable to suit up, River Craycraft looks like his replacement. Craycraft lined up exclusively on the outside against the Patriots and played well, posting 4.25 yards per route run. With two first read targets on eight routes, he wasn't ignored, and he'll likely run more routes without Waddle than Braxton Berrios, who has run 59% of his routes from the slot. Craycraft's playing time projection is risky, but he looks like a viable DFS punt play, as does Berrios. Then I've got a chart comparing Craycraft and Berrios. Craycraft's per route stuff is definitely more interesting. Targets per out of 30% to 20% for Berrios. Expected yards per out run of 2.69, where Berrios is at 1.85. But uh, we're taking a leap of faith here if we play Craycraft because he has 29% route participation to 58% for Berrios. Less target competition is good news for Durham Smythe, who has been running a lot of empty routes. Smythe ranks tight end one with 94% route participation. If you want to tilt Kyle Pitts drafters, tell them he's running routes less frequently than Durham Smythe. Then I've got the chart here showing route participation among all the top tight ends. Kyle Pitts is number two, which is why I say that. Uh, he's at 92%, which is great, but Durham Smythe does lead the way. Uh, after Pitts, it's Dallas Goddard, Mark Andrews, Evan Ingram, Zach Ertz, Tyler Higbee, Hunter Henry, Luke Musgrave, George Kittle, and Dalton Schultz. Smythe is validating my thesis paper by consolidating some of Mike Gesicki's receiving role with the traditional tight end snaps Smythe already had locked down. That thesis paper links to an article where I rolled out a metric called PAPR, or paper. Uh, that's play action participation rate, and it identified Smythe as potentially being able to do this because he already had the play action stuff. He might be able to take kind of the like big receiver stuff that Gasicki was leaving behind. But Smythe isn't doing much more than running around. His 12% target rate is just 22nd percentile for the tight end position. But in this matchup, his route volume puts him in play as a touchdown or bust bet. And then I have Smythe's chart here, 12% uh, Targets per route is not good, but 94% route participation is good, so we're just betting on a touchdown this week. Passing volume isn't great news for Raheem Mostert, though. The Dolphins' starting running back has just a 4% target share and a 6% targets per route run. Interestingly, Mostert is running plenty of routes, ranking running back 7 with 66% route participation, but the Dolphins' offense isn't built to check down to the running back. Then I have Mostert's chart, and it shows that, yeah, his receiving numbers are very poor, 0.37 yards per route run, but he's been a good rusher. However, Mostert's rushing profile has been impressive. He's RB9 in rush yards over expected per game, 
and is providing an explosive element to the run game. With a 39% success rate, Mostert would be a tough watch if the Dolphins tried to run their offense through him, but his consistency is far less important in his current role. Attached to an NFL-leading passing offense, Mostert is operating as an explosive counterpunch against defenses who don't view him as their top priority. The Broncos are solid against the run, but Mostert is still set up to rip off some long runs. The next game is Texans at Jaguars. Texans implied team total 17.75. Despite themselves, the Texans might be fun this year. The Texans would definitely prefer to play conservatively, with a minus 3% pass rate over expected and a minus 11% pass rate over expected on first down. They are operating relative to game script like the 49ers, Cowboys, and Browns. Then I've got a chart that shows pass rate over expected on the x-axis and pass rate over expected on first and 10 on the y. They are in the bottom left, meaning they are conservative overall and conservative on first down. But the Texans aren't nearly as good as the 49ers or Cowboys or even the Browns. While those three teams have been run heavy in scripts that call for it, the Texans are fighting against pass-heavy scripts. But the Texans haven't been fighting that hard. Then I've got their expected pass rate chart, and they are in the top right, along with the Vikings, the Steelers, actually the Bears this year, uh, the Bengals, the Patriots, the Giants. These are teams that are passing a lot because they are in pass-heavy scripts, but they are not going full Falcons and refusing to pass. With an expected 74% pass rate, no team has been in pass-heavier game scripts than Houston. So even after finishing 3% below expected, their 71% pass rate still comes in as the sixth highest in the NFL. This has provided much needed volume for an inefficient passing game. Eventually, CJ Stroud may prove capable of efficiently operating an NFL offense, but right now he's among the least efficient signal callers in the NFL. Then the EPA per game chart here shows Stroud uh, just above Zach Wilson in EPA per game with a similar success rate. He's just below Ryan Tannehill. Uh, so a similar success rate. He's like the success rate of Ryan Tannehill or Zach Wilson with efficiency between the two. It's not been great. This matchup doesn't look great for Stroud from an efficiency standpoint. The Jaguars aren't a lights-out pass defense, mostly because they can't get to the passer but they've been very strong in coverage and rank seventh in dropback success rate, despite having played Patrick Mahomes. Then I've got the matchup chart showing the Texans as a very inefficient passing offense and the Jaguars, very poor pass rush actually. They rank 31st in pass block win rate, but uh, they are third in PFF's coverage grades. They're holding up pretty well despite the lack of a pass rush. But the Jaguars offense should help out here. As nine-point home favorites, they are a good bet to put up touchdowns. That should keep volume in this passing game for the third straight week. Of the gross late-round best ball plays, the Texans' wide receivers are starting to look like the runners-up to the Rams' wide receivers. That's fine by me. One of the first articles I wrote after launching this site identified Nico Collins as a target. I eventually ceded the Nico Collins mantle to Jacob Sanderson, and began tweeting about Robert Woods. It's safe to say that Jacob had the better summer. Then I've got a chart here showing Nico Collins and Robert Woods. 
Nico is at 22% first read target rate. Woods at 14%. Nico has a 23% target share though, uh, and Woods at 22%. So they've been actually pretty even in the target share, but Collins has the much more uh, repeatable targets, I think, given how important he's been to the play calling so far. Both players have solid target shares, but Collins looks like the far more interesting player going forward. His 22% first read target rate indicates that he could be treated as a true number one wide receiver for the Texans. The last step is higher route participation. He's uh, only at 72% as listed in the chart above. With Noah Brown out last week, there was a chance for Collins to see more playing time, but the Texans instead deployed Tank Dell on 82% of dropbacks, leading the Texans wide receivers. But although Dell is impressing for an undersized third round pick, his profile isn't to the level of Collins. Then I've got Tank Dell's profile here. Uh, even his per route stuff isn't ideal. He's at 20% targets per route, which is pretty good. 17% uh, first read target rate is good, but not great. 1.66 expected yards per route run. So Dell's definitely interesting, but Collins has the much stronger profile. Woods and Dell look like viable dart throws this week, but Collins' profiles is a confident flex start. The Texans' backfield continues to look muddled. I've had some pushback on this characterization with people pointing out that the number three running back usage is coming in garbage time. But this is the Texans. Garbage time is a fact of life. Last week, Mike Boone wasn't out there, but the result was the same for Damian Pierce. Then I've got his game log here showing that his snapshot was actually lower in week two, down from 49% to 47%. His route participation dropped from 39% to 31%. Pierce dealt with a heavy dose of Devin Singletary, 35% snap share, and Dario Gumbawale at 21%. He still managed 63% of Houston's attempts, but only saw three targets for the second straight week. Pierce is going against the Jaguars' run defense that is almost definitely a paper tiger. They've been awesome by the numbers, but ESPN's player tracking metric is a reminder that they've played Deion Jackson and Isaiah Pacheco. Pierce is better than those backs. Then I've got the rushing matchup chart here. The Texans have been horrific as a rushing offense, but the Jaguars, who rank second in EPL per rush, third in rushing success rate, fifth in PFF's run grades, uh, are very likely overrated. Again, they are 29th in the player tracking metric. But the issue is that the Texans' offensive line may actually be worse at creating lanes than the Jaguars are at filling them. Eventually, someone will expose the Jaguars on the ground, but it probably won't be Houston who ranks 30th in run block win rate. Moving to the Jaguars, who have an implied team total of 26.25. Trevor Lawrence's efficiency has been rough to start the season. In two games, his efforts have cost the Jaguars 13.7 expected points per game. Only Kenny Pickett has been worse. But Lawrence has been much more respectable when looking at success rate, ranking quarterback 13. Success rate is more stable than EPA. This makes intuitive sense. Success rate measures whether a given play produced a positive expected points result or not. A long touchdown pass or a costly fumble is going to create a big EPA swing, but won't have a huge effect on success rate. The metric is likely to underplay the excellence of a peak Patrick Mahomes season, but success rate will also do a better job of filtering out small sample noise. When comparing Trevor Lawrence's success rate and EPA, he looks like a clear candidate for positive regression. Then I've got Trevor Lawrence here uh, in his EPA per game. 
there's only two quarterbacks who are in the bottom right quadrant of this chart. That means they have really strong success rates, but very poor EPA per play. Those two are Trevor Lawrence, who's at the very bottom. Uh, only Kenny Pickett, again, has been worse in EPA per game. Uh, and Mac Jones is the other quarterback who's in this part of the chart. Trevor Lawrence is kind of flashing as a positive regression candidate here. And Lawrence now gets a Texans defense that ranks 22nd in EPA allowed per dropback and 19th in success rate. And Houston is banged up as well. They may be without both starting safeties for the second straight week. The Texans have shown a knack for generating pressure quickly, but they look very beatable on the back end. Then their matchup chart showing a uh, 22nd rank in EPA per dropback and 19th in dropback success rate. They aren't a horrendous pass defense, but they're definitely beatable. And despite Lawrence's struggles, the Jaguars are running their offense like a team that believes in their quarterback. In week one, they were aggressive on first down against the Colts, despite a run-first game plan. Then against the Chiefs, Jacksonville leaned into their passing game. Then I've got the Jaguars' pass rate of expected chart here. Uh, they were about neutral in pass rate of expected on first and 10 last week, but they were quite aggressive overall in pass rate of expected. The Texans are vulnerable on the ground, but the Jaguars are likely to maintain a balanced approach against them giving Lawrence a chance to rebound in efficiency. Week two was a disappointing follow-up for Calvin Ridley, who looked like a potentially dominant wide receiver after week one. But his week two production may have been negatively impacted by slamming into the goalpost on an end zone target. Either way, through two weeks, Ridley still profiles as the Jaguars' clear number one option. Then I've got a chart here showing Ridley, Christian Kirk, and Zay Jones. Ridley, with 22% first read targets per route, still looks elite in that metric. Uh, even after a little bit of a disappointing outing. Kirk is at 17%, Jones at 14%. Uh, I also note the slot rate here with Christian Kirk at 77% slot rate. That's 90th percentile for uh, wide receiver. Christian Kirk came to life against the Chiefs, drawing 14 targets, nine of which were first read. But we could see more heavy personnel against the Texans this week. Houston can be run on, and their passing game isn't in the same universe as the Chiefs. The Jaguars won't feel pressure to air it out aggressively. But Kirk certainly looks like a better bet for production than he did after one week, especially with Zay Jones now dealing with a knee injury. At tight end, Evan Ingram remains an uninspiring play. As I covered this summer, Ingram tends to run routes closer to the line of scrimmage, leading to a very shallow ADOT. This makes him a volume-based fantasy play which is an ideal in an offense with three viable downfield options. Engram is impressive after the catch, but his 11% first read target rate indicates that he'll be tough to count on four targets. Although, if Zay Jones is inactive, that should help somewhat. Then I have Ingram's chart here. Big things are ADOT at 4.1, very, very low, and an air yard share of just 10%, and expected yards per route run of only 1.28. So Ingram's role in the offense, just not that impressive. Uh, he hasn't been bad, 1.51 yards per outrun. 19% uh, target share is pretty good, but just kind of low upside volume stuff. But at least Engram is running a lot of routes. The same couldn't be said for Travis Etienne last week. After Etienne led all running backs with 83% route participation in week one, his receiving involvement cratered against the Chiefs. Etienne's route participation dropped from 83% to 54%, and his target share dropped from 16% to 5%. Uh, 
It was a crushing development in a game where the Jaguars were bitterly disappointing overall. Then I have ETN's game log here. All the receiving numbers, very disappointing. His snap share was pretty strong though at 72%. But the good news is that ETN's share of rushing attempts spiked from 53% to 86%. He now gets a Texans defense that ranks 30th in EPA allowed per rush and 32nd in run grade. The next chart is the rushing matchup. Um, the Jaguars, not a particularly strong rushing team, but the Texans look very vulnerable. It was nice to see ETN's week one receiving involvement because it appeared to indicate a much wider path to fantasy stardom than we'd assumed in the preseason. But rushing is the strength of ETN's game. He's well suited to take advantage of this week's matchup and profiles as a high-end RB1. Then I have ETN's chart showing, uh, yeah, poor receiving numbers. He's at 0.52 yards per route run. 13% targets per route run is not very good. 10% target share is not great. But he is rushing for more yards than expected. And like last year, he's been very consistent with a 48% success rate. He is definitely in a good spot. The next game is Titans at Browns. Titans implied team total 18.25. Ryan Tannehill has not had a strong start to the season. He ranks quarterback 21 in EPA per game, and his QB 27 ranking and success rate profiles similarly to C.J. Stroud, Bryce Young, and Zach Wilson. He's been less consistent than Justin Fields. It has not been ideal. Then the chart is EPA per game, showing Ryan Tannehill in the part of the chart you don't want to be in. Although, to be fair, most of Tannehill's poor efficiency is being driven by a rough week one. He was much better against the Chargers than he was against the Saints. Then I have a chart showing Tannehill's completion percentage over expected and EPA per play. And last week, he was actually pretty good. He's in the upper right next to guys like Geno Smith, Jared Goff, um, a little bit behind Josh Allen, but he was pretty solid. But Tannehill now gets a fearsome-looking Browns defense. Sure, so far they've played a hobbled Joe Burrow and Kenny Pickett, but they'll still present a tougher challenge than the Chargers. And the Titans are expected to be without rookie guard Peter Skoronsky, already their best offensive lineman, for the second straight week. Then the matchup chart here shows a real mismatch for the Titans' passing offense versus the Browns' pass defense. Again, maybe the Browns are a bit overstated, but not a great setup here. Fortunately, DeAndre Hopkins was able to gut it out on Sunday and will have another week to get right before this game. Tannehill has been leaning on Nuke in a big way this season. Then I've got DeAndre Hopkins' chart here. His first three targets per route are the thing that really jump out. That's at 25%. He's also at a 30% targets per route run, which is an elite rate. Even in a difficult matchup, Hopkins can be trusted to earn significant target volume. Traylon Burks is beginning to show signs of life as well. After just a single first read target in week one, he saw three against the Chargers. That's a 17% rate. He's still behind Hopkins in the target pecking order, but as his 70-yard catch showed, he adds a deep threat element that Hopkins lacks at this point in his career. Then Traylon Burks' chart here shows a 15.1 ADOT. He's at 13.4 yards per target, so he's been efficient when targeted. Uh, still only a 1.71 yards per route run because he's not earning a ton of targets right now. His targets per route at a pretty low 13% first three targets per route at just 7%. Burks is probably not someone you want to be starting this week, 
but he looks to be nearing full health after his preseason LCL sprain. He could be a very interesting start in a week or two. Meanwhile, things look a little more bearish for Chiga Conquo. After logging 71% route participation against the Saints, he fell to 66% against the Chargers. I've got his game log uh, showing that route drop, 75% to 66%. It wasn't all bad. Okonkwo saw a solid 17% target share and a strong 21% targets per route run. That was nice to see after he struggled to earn targets in week one. But Okonkwo's route participation was still at part-time levels last week, which makes it difficult to believe he'll see elite route volume in this game. Then I've got his chart here. His route participation is at 71% for the season, which isn't terrible, but it's not great. And his first three targets per route at only 10%. So he's not been a big piece of the offense so far. In a tough matchup, and with Burks looking more capable of earning targets, Okonkwo looks like a dart throw option. His best bet is that the Titans utilize him on screens to slow down Cleveland's pass rush. Okonkwo has seen 17% of his targets on screens, which ranks tight end five among full-time players. Against the Chargers, King Henry regained his backfield throne, playing 73% of the snaps with Tajay Spears at just 35%. And Henry was more involved as a receiver, earning three targets. Then I've got Henry's game log just showing a much stronger week two in terms of his usage than week one. But Spears still stole two targets after seeing four in week one. With limited receiving volume going to the running backs in Tennessee, Spears' continued involvement hurts. And now facing a Browns defense that ranks second in rushing success rate, it could be a low-value touch kind of day for Henry. Given his unimpressive rushing efficiency this season, that is not a great setup. Then Henry's chart here shows um, that he's been running back 15 in success rate, so not bad there, but only running back 22 in rush yards of expected per game. He has not been bad as a rusher. He just hasn't been awesome, and this is a very tough matchup. But with the Browns' offense struggling to get anything going, the Titans are unlikely to be completely pushed off their game plan, which, surprise, will be to establish Henry. He profiles as a low-end RB1. Moving to the Browns, whose implied team total is 21.25. Of all the timelines we could be living in, it feels safe to say that this one is not the best. But hey, at least the Browns look like total clowns for mortgaging their franchise for Deshaun Watson. Then I have a tweet here from Greg Rosenthal saying, It's okay to point out the player with the highest guaranteed contract in NFL history has been consistently poor to mediocre since signing that contract and serving an 11-game suspension for sexual assault. Watson ranks quarterback 30 in EPA per game, ahead of only Trevor Lawrence and Kenny Pickett. Then I have his EPA per game chart here, and yeah, he's real far down there. Uh, success rate not quite as bad as the EPA per game. But, like Lawrence, Watson looks like a positive regression candidate. His success rate doesn't show as much potential for improvement as Lawrence's, but he's unlikely to remain quite as inefficient as he's been so far. And this week's matchup should help. Watson gets a Titans defense that ranks 25th in EPA allowed per dropback and 22nd in success rate. Then I have the matchup chart here showing the Titans are a weak pass defense, also showing that the Browns are not a particularly strong passing offense. But while this week's matchup should help the Browns passing game, that effect could be limited by the Browns play calling. Facing a Titans offense that is unlikely to push them, the Browns may play things conservatively 
as they have done to start the season. Then I've got the expected pass rate chart here showing that the Browns are very much a team dictating the run to their opponents. They've been in scripts that allow for a lot of running and they've happily run the ball. The Browns have generally been in game scripts that allow for high rushing volume and they've happily taken advantage of that. But this week, a run-heavy attack is unlikely to pay off. Then I've got the matchup chart here showing the Titans' run defense ranking first in rushing success rate and fourth in EPA allowed per rush. Kind of a strength versus strength here, although in the chart, the Titans look like the stronger of the two. This game will be a helpful data point regarding Kevin Stefanski's remaining level of trust in Watson. So far, opponents have shifted to the pass against the Titans, but the Browns, who have a minus 5% pass rate of expected this season, aren't a lock to follow suit. Brutally, we lost Nick Chubb for the season on Monday night. Chubb is truly one of the all-time rushing greats and was off to an excellent start this season. Then I've got Chubb's stats. He was RB6 in rush yards of expected per attempt, RB5 in rush yards of expected per game, and RB2 in success rate. Chubb's 61% success rate is insane, especially as part of an offense that was struggling to move the ball through the air. The Browns are now forced to feature Jerome Ford in the running game. Ford has flashed serious big playability on his 31 attempts, but he's also struggled badly with consistency. Then I've got his chart. The big thing to highlight is the success rate where he is running back 39. With Chubb in the backfield, the Browns had the option to take a break from their ineffective passing game, knowing that Chubb would be able to reliably churn out yards. But Ford looks like a different type of back. As an inconsistent but explosive runner, he looks better suited to being the big play counterpunch to a dangerous passing game. In other words, if the Browns passing game was clicking, he could be Cleveland's Raheem Mostert. But Ford looks like a bad bet to consistently beat a staunch Tennessee front. He should be in for some very productive days as the Browns fill in starter, but this week reeks of a Joshua Kelly style letdown. But perhaps knowing that they can't lean on Chubb will push the Browns to the air, increasing their odds of putting up points in this matchup. And if the Browns passing game can get things going, we should at least know where the targets are headed. Then I've got Amari Cooper, Elijah Moore, and Donovan Peoples-Jones compared on a chart, and Cooper and Moore look quite a bit stronger than DPJ. Amari Cooper and Elijah Moore have emerged as a 1A-1B tandem. Cooper looks to be the 1A, but it's too early to say for sure. Cooper has a slight lead in first read target rate and expected yards per route run, but Moore leads the league in almost cool catches. Moore has just a 1.14 yards per route run this year, but there's still plenty of meat on that bone. Elijah, if you can figure out a way to complete a catch before going out of bounds, add some broth, a potato, baby, you got a stew going. Cooper and Moore are helped by the fact that Donovan Peoples-Jones and David Njoku are professional wind sprinters. Then I have Njoku's chart showing strong route participation, but very little target involvement. With a 6% first read target rate, Njoku doesn't appear to be out there to catch passes. But with a 1.9 ADOT, he's not pulling downfield coverage like DPJ, who has a 10.2 ADOT. So Njoku's version of cardio isn't even wind sprinting. It requires far less movement. Yoga, maybe? And then I have a picture of Njoku's fumble against the Steelers in which he does appear to be doing a yoga pose. Regardless, Njoku is best left on benches 
outside of point per downward dog leagues. All right, that'll do it for this episode. Thanks so much for listening. Uh, As I said, if you want to hear the rest of this, uh, you can go sign up at legendaryupside.com. The entire article is narrated there. I cover all the games on Sunday and Monday every week. The article comes out late Thursday night, early Friday morning, uh, and the podcast version comes out at that time as well. And the podcast is on a premium podcast feed, so you set that up in your podcast player. You can listen to it there. It gets delivered to you. You don't have to go to the site to listen to it. You can just listen to it like a normal podcast. Hope to see you on the site. Hope to see you in the Discord, uh, and see you next week. 